You could be seated. Well, we're in Genesis 32 and 33 this morning. If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to find a Bible, uh, either on your phone or perhaps on your lap, or if you haven't yet uh, procured one, there's uh, black Bibles here on those half walls throughout the room, and you'll want to find Genesis 32 and have it in front of you. As you're turning there, let me begin by having you ponder this question. Is it hard or easy to become a Christian? Don't, don't answer too quickly. Is it hard or easy to become a Christian? I heard someone say yes. And, and are there not two correct answers to that? I can imagine one person saying, hard? No, it's not hard to become a Christian. That's the good news of the gospel, that you cease from working and striving and earning, and you rest in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. You simply believe on Christ. You simply trust in him. You simply rely on him. It's as easy as leaning back in your chair. I can imagine another person saying, is it hard to become a Christian? Well, it sure was for me. My friends and family were working on me for decades. I wrestled with questions of faith and truth for years. I wrestled with the Bible and its veracity for years. And in fact, the greatest hurdle to becoming a Christian for me wasn't even intellectual hang-ups for me, the greatest hurdle was me seeing my own sin for what it is, my own need for salvation, C coming to the end of myself. That was the hardest part, coming to see that I couldn't do it on my own or even with God's assistance. And so, yeah, it was a long process and a painful one, and it was anything but easy. So it, it is hard to become a Christian for many. And I think both of those testimonies are true to the Bible. And we see that hard and easy dynamic play out in the life of Jacob in the book of Genesis, especially chapters 32 and 33 of Genesis. Let me read both chapters for us up front. That'll take a bit of time. It'll take us uh, around eight minutes or so. Now, before you are averse to that, remember that many of us in this room haven't read eight minutes of Bible all week, and it'd be good for us to get eight minutes straight in right now. And even more, I want us to see the big picture of the passage up front before we take it in parts uh, later on. Chapter 32, verse 1, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels, into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O oh Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. 
But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau my brother meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are those ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face, perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is that you ask me my name? And there... He blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the sinew of the thigh. Chapter 33, and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel, and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously graciously with me and because I have enough thus he urged him and he took it then Esau said let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you but Jacob said to him my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me if they are driven hard for one day all the flocks will die let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Sire. So Esau said, 
let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, oh, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sair. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he brought 400 pieces of money, of the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Well, our passage has many ups and downs, many turns in the road, many curiosities and conundrums. But the literary structure is not one of the conundrums. That's pretty plain and simple. It follows a typical plot arc. And you might vaguely remember plot arcs from somewhere in grade school. Or if you're like me, you must have been sleeping that day. But maybe later in life you've learned them. Or perhaps today you will. There are five parts to a plot arc. There's the setting. It sets the stage. Then there's a... Let me do it this way so it's looking the same, looking right for you. The setting, and then there's this rising action where tension builds, and then it reaches the climax, the third part, and then there is a, a falling action where conflict begins to be resolved, and then there's a new setting. And from the beginning setting to the end, there's usually movement and development. So you can see even from our passage, it begins Jacob traveling, and then at the end, he arrives. And there are interesting parts along the way. So five parts to a typical plot arc, and five points to this sermon. First, there is an angelic affirmation. That's the setting, an angelic affirmation, the first two verses after 20 long years with father-in-law Laban, Jacob now sets out on his way back to his people, to his family in Canaan. Remember, he left his homeland 20 years ago for two reasons. He needed to find a wife, hopefully not a Canaanite wife, and he needed to flee from his brother Esau who was plotting murderous revenge. And the plan all along was that Jacob would eventually return. Chapter 28, verse 15, God said, Behold, I am with you and will bring you back to this land. Chapter 31, verse 3, God said again, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. And then again, in the same chapter, verse 13, Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Well, now that time has come. And not long into his journey, verse 1, the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. He called the place Mahanaim, which means two camps. Two camps? Yeah, one is human and the other is heavenly. One is Jacob's camp and his people. The other is this angelic assembly. It's a meeting of heaven and earth. And if you've been studying Genesis with us in recent weeks, this might sound familiar to you. Jacob? Angels? Didn't Jacob have an angelic encounter? Yes, back in chapter 28. It was actually on his way out of the promised land when he had that vision of the ladder or the steps going up to heaven and angels descending and ascending this ladder. It was a, a symbol of a, a portal between heaven and earth. It signaled to Jacob what God was right then saying to Jacob that he would be with him wherever he goes. So by way of assurance and affirmation, God gave this angelic vision as 
Jacob left the promised land, and now God gives another angelic visitation as Jacob re-enters the promised land. And I wonder if all of that is meant to remind us of the Garden of Eden. The garden's entrance, after all, was protected by angels. And of course, they were there to keep anyone from entering the garden again. So there's no going back to the garden, no. But there is a way forward as God seeks to dwell with his people. And that's going to be the promised land, Canaan. The promised land is garden-like, not only in its plushness and plentifulness, but also as a place of God's special presence among his people. Of course, this garden promised land connection isn't made explicit in our passage per se, but that's just thinking big picture. That's just thinking theologically. And we should be quick as Christians to think how the presence of God actually gets traced out and developed in the rest of the story. We are now the dwelling place of God. This meeting of saints is a dwelling place of God. And one day, Jesus will come again, and we will be united to him in a new temple-like garden place called the new heaven and the new earth. Well, here's just a little blip on the screen of where that's going and where it's been. An angelic affirmation. Secondly, pursuing reconciliation. Here's the rising action or the growing tension of the story starting in verse 3. Now I said already that Jacob fled from his family back 20 years ago in part because Esau, his brother, intended to kill him. Well, let's not forget why Esau intended to kill his brother Jacob. There was that swindled birthright over a bowl of beans in Genesis 25. There was that stolen blessing in Genesis 27 where Jacob dressed up as hairy Esau to fool his blind dad who intended to bless Esau but mistakenly blessed Jacob. It's then that Mama Rebecca learned of Esau's murderous intentions and sent Jacob away after 20 years with Laban now with 12 kids and lots of livestock, Jacob seeks to return to the homeland, which means passing near where Esau has been dwelling. So Jacob, ever the initiator, ever the planner, for better or worse, he seeks reconciliation with his brother, who he hasn't seen these 20 years, and who, last he's heard, intends to kill him. Now, whether Jacob seeks reconciliation with his brother out of repentance and sorrow for his sin, guilt, desire to do what's right, or perhaps just for self-protection, it's better to initiate contact and seek to appease Esau rather than have a surprise encounter which turns violent. Nevertheless, he makes contact. He sends messengers. He, he tells them to say, we have come from your servant Jacob and we're here to let you know he seeks to find favor with you. The messengers quickly return and announce he's coming to meet you and 400 men with him. Dun, dun, dun. There would be music at this point if this was a movie. This is ominous. And Jacob is afraid, greatly afraid and distressed. And so he divides the people and the animals into two camps. I mean, if they get one camp, maybe the other one gets away. And then he prays. He prays. Let's just celebrate that. Verses 9 to 12 are a pretty good prayer from Jacob, who in the past, at least in the story here in the Bible, hasn't been doing much praying but here he prays to the God of his fathers, the God who covenants. He recounts what God has told him to do and what he seeks to do. 
He confesses his unworthiness in verse 10. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness you've shown me. He uses that classic language of steadfast love and faithfulness that will become so important in the rest of the story of the Bible. Now, I think he also betrays some earthly thinking in verse 10 when he says to God, I have become two camps. Remember, he said two camps before. He referred to Mahanaim as two camps because it was an angelic assembly and his family. But now he separated the people out of fear into two camps, and he says to God, I have become two camps. My family is split in two. It's like he's forgotten the angelic camp that is still there even though he can't see them. Nevertheless, he asks God, please deliver me, for I fear him. He ends the prayer by recounting God's covenantal promises. You said, I will surely do you good and multiply your offspring. It's tough to peg this prayer in some ways. I'd give it a B plus. But it's tough to peg Jacob almost at any point. Not least in our passage all the way through. Jacob is almost always a mixed bag. In the good, there's often an element that's not so good. Sometimes there's something really good that happens and something bad is not far behind. Apart from the report of the 400 men coming with Esau and after its immediate reaction of fear and distress and even after the prayer to God, Jacob gets planning. He makes arrangements for, well, for gifts, what our passage calls the present, what a present it is. It's multi-layered as he divides the family and the flocks into groups with Jacob in the rear. The intended purpose is to have a layered scheme to wear down Esau's possible animosity. A layered scheme to successively prove to Esau Jacob's peaceful intentions And so when Esau encounters one group, they'll say, we're with Jacob. These animals are for you as a present, and Jacob is behind us. Group after group after group. The present is not only multi-layered, it is massive. 550 animals in all. Jim Hamilton, a professor at Southern Seminary, suggested a rough estimate of the cost of these gifts being total, in our day, our money, $260,000. That shows how wealthy Jacob is at this point, and it also shows us how important this matter is of reconciling with his brother. He hopes that it might appease him, verse 20. I want to see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. And once again, it isn't quite clear, at least not to me, just how to assess all this. There is certainly much good in what Jacob is doing. Jacob indeed did sin greatly against his brother. And seeking reconciliation, especially when you're the offending party, is always right. Even after 20 years, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. But doesn't this have the smell of the fear of man all over it? I don't know. Is it too over the top? It's something. I can't quite put my finger on it. And sometimes the best thing we can simply do when we're not sure how to interpret part of the Bible is just to read on. Verse 22. The same night he arose and took two wives, two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone in the dark, all alone. What will happen next? Thirdly, there's a heavenly altercation. 
a heavenly altercation. This point will take a little longer than the others because it is the climax of our passage. It's the turning point in the broader narrative. It's a very important passage for the story of God's people as a whole. And it's quite curious and confounding. It's a passage I suspect that many of us might actually misinterpret and misapply. I've called it a heavenly altercation, not because it takes place in heaven, it takes place place at a river, but because Jacob apparently wrestles with a heavenly being. That's not immediately obvious to Jacob, of course. We're told he wrestled with a man, verse 24. Later, it will be said, you have striven with God and with man, verse 28. Jacob eventually will confess that the whole experience is like this. I've seen God face to face. Which is it, man, God? We also have Hosea's brief commentary about the wrestling match. Hosea 12. In the womb, Jacob took his brother by the heel. In his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. Which is it, a man, God, an angel? Well, many believe that this, in Genesis 32, is a physical manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. In other words, this is Jesus before he was born. When that happens, it's called a Christophany. And perhaps that's what this is. Calvin sure thought so and argued for it strongly. I think it's likely or possible, but it's not for sure. We know that it was a physical encounter... We know it was a physical manifestation because Jacob was in the end harmed physically. And we know the one who wrestled with Jacob was something like a man. You don't wrestle with spirits. And we know by what is said that that being is also most likely God himself. Let's piece it together. What happened exactly? That'll help us with why it happened. In the night, all alone, Jacob was attacked by a man. And surely he thought it was Esau. That's what he would have thought. A wrestling match ensues. It lasts all night. And when Jacob would not relent, the man touched his hip socket, throwing it out of socket, perhaps even crushing the pelvis. The Hebrew isn't clear. But whatever happened anatomically The result was that Jacob was crippled and hobbling for the rest of his life. That proves that this was no close match despite the duration of it. Jacob was wrestling omnipotent God. God allowed this wrestling match to be proclaimed, prolonged as long as it went. And when it would go no longer, when it would be prolonged no longer, the man, God, simply went skadoosh. (laughs) Remember that from Kung Fu Panda? Skadoosh, that's it. He just touched him. God condescended to let this match go all night, and then with divine power, a mere touch hobbled him for life. Come nearing the daybreak, the man seeks to leave. Jacob refuses to let him go. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And it's here again that we must not give Jacob undue credit or too much credit. We might picture Jacob, the man, having the man in a full Nelson, you know? A good wrestling move, a good bar arm or something. As if the God-man is at the mercy of the more powerful Jacob. But that can't be. We know that's not right. All Jacob is doing here, busted hip and all, is all that he can do at this point. It is to cling to the man. Not hold him in a lock, but cling to him. Hang on to him. Cling to the man and beg for blessing. This divine encounter at the Jabbok is not Jacob getting something out of God, let alone Jacob overpowering God. 
This isn't a story of Jacob proving himself to God, nor giving us an example of persistence in prayer, which, if we press on long enough, can prevail on God. No, this is God bringing Jacob to the end of himself. This is God showing Jacob his greatest character flaw, his sin, which was not only proven in almost every Jacob story so far in Genesis, but is actually exemplified here in the wrestling that goes all night. Jacob has been a wrestler all his life. He came out of the womb wrestling with Esau, clutching his heel. And thus he was named Jacob, which means heel grabber or deceiver. He took advantage of his hungry brother. He deceived his father into giving him the blessing. Yes, he was on the receiving end of deception via Uncle Laban, but he was also equally willing to deceive and trick Uncle Laban right back when the opportunity arose. He has been wrestling people and circumstances to his advantage his whole life. And now, in, excuse me, in chapter 32, he wrestles with God. And in classic Jacob form, he will not relent. That night at the Jabbok, was a confrontation of Jacob before it can ever be a commendation of Jacob. And that's what this matter of the names is all about. Verse 27, the man said to Jacob, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. You have to realize how significant that is. This is the correction to the lie he told his blind father in chapter 27. There, Isaac asked, what is your name? And Isaac, Jacob said, I am Esau. And now in chapter 32, God asks him, what is your name? And he admits, I am Jacob. It's also a confession of who he is and what he's been like and what he's done his whole life. Who are you? I am Jacob, deceiver, heel grabber, manipulator. More than just answering a question or saying his name, he's giving a confession and admission. And it's then, it's only then that the man says, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Israel. Israel means God strives. God fights. Here's your new name. It's your new identity. No longer Jacob, deceiver, heel grabber, manipulator. This is your banner. God fights. God strives. The battle is the Lord. This is the birth of a nation. From this one man will come a nation who will bear his name and share that identity. God strives. Hmm. Jacob asked the man for his name, but no name will be given. That'll have to wait till Exodus 3. Nevertheless, the man blessed him. And Jacob confesses, verse 30, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob is left with a permanent reminder. Jacob will remember this night, the encounter and the confession and the name change, the new identity. He'll remember it for the rest of his life because he'll walk with a limp. And all Israel will remember this event for the rest of their lives. For every animal they butcher, they will put aside the hip to think of old Jacob at the Jabbok. What wonderful, undeserved grace. What condescension we have in this awesome, powerful God. But the process of getting there, the process of coming to that grace can be painful. Painful. 
It can be slow. It can be painful. But we must all, each of us, must come to the end of ourselves and then cling to God for his blessing. I wonder if you've ever had an encounter with God, maybe not physical like this, maybe not visual like this. Have you had an encounter with God where he allowed you to see your sin painfully, horribly? That's what we need. It's painful, yes, it's hard, but I don't know of any other way to be made right with him. So is it easy or hard to get right with God? Well, it is hard for so many. For many, it looks like years of running from God and doing your own thing or occasionally praying briefly to get his assistance. For many, it comes to a dark night of wrestling with God until he mercifully allows them to run out of options and run out of strength. Having come to the end of themselves, though, with no more strength to fight or resist, they begin to cling to God and to cry out for blessing. And that's why it's so easy to become a Christian. Because once you come to the end of yourself, you simply cling to him. You simply ask for blessing. He gives you a new name, a new identity. And you're cleansed. That's why Jesus can say, strive to enter into the narrow gate. And he's that narrow gate. you got to get him. Strive to enter in. And he can also say, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus offers us rest on account of his work. That's one way to think of the cross or another. Jesus offers us rest on account of the fact that he simply gave himself over to it. He ceased striving. Oh, he never strove sinfully like Jacob did. But remember the, the Garden of Gethsemane where he wept and sweat, drops of blood. He asked his father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He went to the cross. He finished the work on the cross. And now we've put all our hope in him. The final and complete, the perfect Israelite. Remember, Jacob got that new name. You shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Where's that going in the plan of God? Well, a son of Abraham, a son of Isaac, a son of Jacob, thousands of years later would come and he would be the one. Hmm. That's where our hope lies. Have you come to, to the end of yourself? Have you come to cease from striving? Have you come to cling to Jesus and cry out? Fourth in our passage, and we'll do these last two more quickly. We've got acceptable restitution. Here's the, the falling action. It begins to get resolved, and yet, does it? We could call this point reconciliation almost. The second point was reconciliation pursued. Well, this is sort of reconciliation looks good, but is it? There are two halves to this part of the story. The first part is happy and hopeful. The second is realistic and somewhat painful. Chapter 33, verse 1, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau's coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the family, and he himself went on before them. What's going to happen next? Verse 4, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. <sighs> Who saw that coming? Harry Esau ran, hugged, kissed, wept. Esau then asks, who, who are all these people? The changed Jacob now testifies to God, verse 5. The children whom God has graciously given your servant. 
He saw meets the family and the servants one by one. It's all so sweet and warm and affectionate. Jacob brings the discussion back to the point of the matter, reconciliation. Verse 10, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Don't misunderstand that. Esau's face, like the face of God, simply means that Esau's face reminded Jacob of God's grace, of God's deliverance, of God's answer to prayer, of that whole encounter the night before. Esau's face does not look like the face of God. But seeing that face with a smile on it and tears upon it meant God delivered him through and through. He says, please accept my blessing. Verse 11. He urged him. Esau then took it. So it's settled, right? All is good. Esau took it. Everyone's hugged and kissed and wept. Hugged some more. Well, verse 12, the mood shifts. Verse 12. Then Esau said, so let us journey on our way together. Uh, Jacob knows that though the two are somewhat reconciled, they shouldn't dwell together. They can't dwell together. Esau is Hittite through and through, not only through marriage, but also likely in practice. And though he has kindly forgiven Jacob, the relationship is restored horizontally, Esau is not the changed man that Jacob is. Esau here speaks nothing of God. I think it's right that Jacob would have to eventually part company with Esau. But notice how he goes about it. It's classic Jacob. He says, you guys go on ahead. I'll stay back with the slow animals and the little kids and such. And I'll meet you in Sire." Esau says, how about some of my men stay with you? Jacob says, oh, that's not necessary. Go on. We're right behind you. But don't wait up. (laughs) Jacob didn't need to lie to not travel with Esau, but that's what he did. He had no intentions of going to Sire. So Esau traveled south to Sire, and Jacob and company traveled west to Sukkoth. There he made booths, and he stayed a while. And now we come to the new setting. Number five, a significant destination. Verse 18, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Ah, Canaan, the promised land. He's not only there, but He buys land, verse 19, much like Father Abraham did when he purchased a plot of land for Sarah's burial. Remember, if you were with us, how significant that was. That's the land, the promised land, the land God keeps talking about that he will give to his people. Abraham, when he bought a plot of land, he owned it. He wasn't just renting. He wasn't just traveling through. And here, Jacob, owns some of the land. The reality, the promises of God, going back to Genesis 12 and following, are unfolding and unfolding. Even more, there Jacob erected an altar, an altar, a place for God's presence and his worship. This is Jacob's first altar, following the tradition of Abraham, where he had set up various altars for God's worship when he traveled. He called the place El Elohi Israel. The God, the God of Israel. It's a significant destination after a long, dangerous journey with many ups and downs. Jacob has now returned to the promised land with 11 sons and one daughter, with land of their own and a fixture of a place for worship. It's almost akin to our heavenly home going as Christians. We journey on, 
with life's ups and downs and conflict and conflict resolution, walking by faith until the Lord one day safely brings us home. It's heavenly. Or is it? Is this ending in Genesis 33 really the happy ending that I've made it out to be? It is good, but, but there's something missing here. Something's not right. It, it's subtle. You might not notice it when you first read it a time or two, but it's undeniable once you notice it. Joseph, sorry, Jacob didn't go home when he went to Shechem. Bethel is home. The plan all along, even God telling him so three times, was that he would return to his family, his people, in Bethel. God said he'd be with him all the way back to Bethel. Why didn't Jacob go to Bethel? Shechem is good, but not great. It's B-plus stuff. And we don't know why. This Jacob guy is hard to peg. At his best moments, there's still often something missing, something that he falls short of, something he holds back. He'll bless God in one sentence and speak a little lie out of convenience in the next. He was a changed man that night at the Jabbok, but not perfectly changed, not forever changed, not completely changed, and this almost obedience, this B-plus kind of stuff, exemplifies that. Doesn't it sound familiar, Christian? We Christians have a new identity. We're part of a new creation. Old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. But not with a snap of a finger. Not immediately, not all at once, not in a straight line progressively. It's a roller coaster. And by God's grace, he often sees us through all the way to the end, which tends to be a little higher up than it was when we left. Don't the ups and downs of your Christian walk and your surprise sins, your old Jacob, peeking out from behind the curtain when you know God's given you a new name and a new character and a new identity. Doesn't that make you long for heaven? I mean, real heaven, not, not Shechem heaven. I'm talking real heaven. Don't you long for heaven? Aren't you tired of your sin? I am. Aren't you tired of hypocrisy? Senseless lies that do no good. Your inconsistencies, your constant fear of man. Using prayer only to bail you out of trouble. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5. They're opposed to each other to keep us from doing the things that we want to do. Oh, how sweet will be our final homegoing someday when there will be sin no more. On that day when freed from sinning, we sang earlier, we shall see thy lovely face. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we will sing and shout the victory. John Bunyan, in the 17th century, wrote the second most popular book in the English language, Pilgrim's Progress. I hope you know the story. It's a story of Christian, that's the character, pilgriming through this life, through various trials and ups and downs, on his way to the celestial city, which represents heaven. And oh, how beautiful it is as Bunyan pens these words about Christian and his buddy Hopeful as they're nearing heaven. Hopeful says, Brother, I see the gate and men standing to receive us. 
Christian broke out with a loud voice. I see him. And he tells me, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. They both took courage. They crossed the river. Thus, they got over. Then the pilgrims went up the hill and went up the hill with ease. They went up with much agility and speed. They went up through the regions of the air, sweetly talking as they went, being comforted because they safely got over the river and had such glorious companions to attend them. Then they talked with the shining ones, angels, about the glory of the place. The beauty and glory of it was inexpressible. The angel said, you are going now to the paradise of God. You shall see the tree of life and eat of the never fading fruit. You shall have white robes given you and you will walk and talk every day with the king. There you shall not see again any sorrow, sickness, affliction, and death. For the former things have passed away. You are now going to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. You must now receive the comforts of your toil and all the joy for all your sorrow. And in that place, you will enjoy the perpetual sight and vision of the Holy One. And there you shall see him as he is. And you shall serve him continually with praise and thanksgiving. Though your eyes shall be delighted with seeing and your ears with hearing the pleasant voice of the mighty one. And you shall enjoy your friends again. That's what awaits us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for... Your powerful, majestic, and big word. A big word in Genesis. A big word that takes us beyond even to heaven itself. We thank you for grace. We thank you for the hope of heaven. We pray, Lord, that you would stir in our hearts such affection for you and thankfulness for grace that we are increasingly a transformed people as we keep our eyes on what's to come, rather on who is to come. We pray in your name, amen.